Welcome to this year's Eye on Coog, an I Believe mini-seminar. In this presentation, you'll hear from Dr. Harbour, Dr. Reckstein, Dr. Williams, and Dr. Kohea, ocular oncologists who are part of the Collaborative Ocular Oncology Group. This seminar was brought to you by Castle Biosciences and made possible by our other sponsors, Aura Biosciences, Immunocore, Idea Biosciences, Delcath Systems, and Trisalis Life Sciences. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the presentation. Hi, you guys. Welcome back for our first seminar this year. We have some mini seminars planned for you in 2024, and your very first seminar that we have up is Ion Coog. You're going to learn about what does Coog mean, what does that abbreviation stand for shortly, but I just wanted to take a minute, welcome you guys as uh, we have our live participants joining to the webinar, as we have people joining on Facebook. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your support. And as we get started, I want to take a minute just to thank our sponsors, the sponsors who sponsor our I Believe events, so our 2023 I Believe in Seattle, uh, they also are helping to sponsor these mini seminars that we have three to four times or two to three times throughout the year. So we're super thankful for Castle Biosciences, Immunocore, IDEA, Aura Biosciences, Trisalis Life Sciences, and Delcath Systems for their support uh, for the rest of this uh, mini seminar series that you'll see. So with that, I am going to introduce our speakers. So our first speakers are, are our, our series of speakers is we're going to have Dr. Harbour from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And um, after him, we're going to hear from Dr. David Reichstein, and he is from Tennessee Retina in Nashville. And following Dr. Reichstein, you'll hear from Dr. Basil Williams. He is at Bascom Palmer Eye Institute, Bascom Palmer Eye Institute in the University of Miami in Florida. And then concluding, we'll hear from Dr. Kohea, who is also from Bascom Palmer Eye Institute in Florida. So thank you again to our speakers, to our sponsors, to those of you who are here live or on the webinar. Uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and welcome Dr. Dr. Harbour, our first speaker, and he's going to give us the agenda for the day. Good morning, everyone. Um, uh, here's my uh, slides here. Uh, I want to thank uh, Cure Insight uh, for sponsoring uh, this event and uh, Castle Biosciences and all of the um, uh, sponsors uh, of this event. And part of um, what uh, what I would like to convey in my talk is uh, just what a long road um, it's been uh, since I got into this field in terms of industry interest uh, in uveal melanoma or ocular melanoma. Um, when I got into this field, there's really zero interest from industry um, in, in, in uveal melanoma. And, you know, really without industry interest, uh, you're not going to make any progress um, in uh, either uh, biomarkers like the the the, the decision DX UM uh, tests that we'll talk a little bit about today, uh, nor in treatments like uh, Tebi um, and now IDEA and other uh, uh, products that are that are coming along. So, um, and I think Coog has played a, an important role in that, and and I'll uh, kind of discuss that a little bit as as we get into this. Um, the agenda for today uh, is here. Uh, I'm going to talk about the history of Coog, uh, and then uh, Dr. Reichstein will talk about um, Coog One, which was really our, our first uh, uh, prospective uh, uh, study um, uh, that established uh, what is now called the Decision DXUM test, uh, the the gene expression profile test. 
um, was the first uh, prospectively validated test uh, ever and still the only prospectively validated test uh, for uterine melanoma in the world. Um, and then uh, Dr. Basil Williams will uh, talk about the more recent uh, CUG-2 uh, study, which was uh, recently, uh, was completed a couple of years ago, but we're uh, uh, watching the data um, mature uh, and are uh, preparing uh, right now uh, to submit the results for uh, publication. It will be the first major publication of uh, the, the, the second uh, CUG study or CUG-2. And then Dr. Kohea uh, we'll talk about uh, the future of uh, KOOK and uh, where we're going, uh, hopefully, um, in the future. Um, so, uh, uh, first of all, you know, uh, uh, I was asked to answer a few questions here. What is KOOK? Um, and KOOK stands for the Collaborative Ocular Oncology Group. Um, it's different uh, uh, from any other uh, ocular oncology group in the world. Um, in that it's not a society, it's not a club, uh, it's not uh, sort of open uh, membership for for everybody to come. It's it it is a working group. It is a research working group. Uh, when we meet, we talk about research. We 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 are very focused on uh, our patients with uveal melanoma and uh, making progress. Uh, first, it was around the biomarkers, as I mentioned, uh, the you know the GEP, and then Prain, and then as you'll hear, um, there we've we've been working on um, uh, uh, mutation profiling, next generation sequencing. Um, we'll be moving into other areas in the future, liquid biopsy, things like that. But it's a very focused working group. We meet to talk about how we're working together, and it's turned out to be uh, we we meet once a year uh, at the DFW uh, airport uh, at a hotel there. Uh, now we're starting to meet uh, a second time uh, each year. Uh, that 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 meeting is in January typically, and then we're now meeting in May or June uh, at the uh, ASCO meeting in Chicago, which is the big meeting for medical oncologists. Um, so those meetings are very focused. Um, they're invitation only for, for folks that are working uh, on a particular study or a study that we are um, uh, in the process of developing. So in that sense, it's, it's a very unique uh, group. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's very focused on uh, results, on, on moving the field forward. Um, and, um, uh, you know, as you'll hear more, we, uh, it, 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 in the beginning was only ocular oncologists. Um, but uh, three or four years ago, we really pivoted to include the medical oncologists that we all work with, because to really make progress in this field, it, it really is the ocular oncologist working with the medical oncologist. You know, if we have patients have, who have a high risk uh, melanoma, they're class two or they're preying positive, um, they um, they need to have a medical oncologist uh, involved early uh, for surveillance, and they also uh, need to have access to clinical trials uh, where we can uh, identify uh, uh, therapies that um, could um, uh, uh, reduce or eliminate the the uh, the outgrowth of metastatic disease later. So this is this group now is about equally represented by ocular oncologists and medical oncologists. And it's, uh, you know, the, the ones that really work together. And what we're seeing in trials now 
Uh, and you'll hear more about this from, you know, in regard to the IDEA trial, which is a great example. This is a trial of both ocular and medical oncologists. The patients come in, they're seen by the ocular oncologist. Um, if they meet the criteria for the study, then they go and see medical oncology, and then it's a joint trial. So I think you're going to be seeing more and more of this uh, in the future um, of uh, your ocular oncologist and medical oncologist working hand in hand. And who really has spearheaded this? We we have really been uh, the group that has uh, catalyzed this new way of working together. When I got in the field, most ocular oncologists didn't even know a medical oncologist. They they just took care of the eye. They sent the patient out, and that was it. You know, that it was really up to the patient to figure out where to go find a medical oncologist. So I think Cougas played a huge role in changing that dynamic. Um, I've just explained why it exists. Um, it was really developed uh, initially around my uh, funded research. Uh, my funded research from the National Cancer Institute um, uh, uh, funded the development of the gene expression profile, the brain test, the discovery of BAP1 mutations, which was done in my lab, the discovery of SF3B1 mutations, um, uh, a lot of the things that you hear about uh, now in, in, in terms of the genetics of human melanoma was funded by a grant from the National Cancer Institute uh, with me as the principal investigator. Uh, and and the, uh, the investigators in the COOG uh, are, are, are part of that. And we developed the, the Collaborative Ocular Oncology Group as a group to uh, carry out uh, what we uh, um what we said we were going to do in the grant, which was to prospectively validate uh, this test. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll get into what is the outcome of the COOG and what it hopes to achieve. You're going to see that we've achieved quite a bit uh, in COOG 1 and COOG 2 and now going forward. Uh, so let me just give you a little bit of background. We all know here what ocular melanoma is. Um, I won't go over that more. And I think everybody here knows that the major problem uh, is not treating the primary tumor. We're pretty good at doing that, um, uh, but it's really the problem of metastatic disease. You know, despite uh, 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 effective treatment of the primary tumor, a lot of patients still go on to develop metastatic disease. And for many years, nobody really knew why. Um, we, if we go all the way back to the 1930s and maybe even before that, people realized that there were differences uh, that you could see in the in the primary tumor in the eye that <clears throat> seem to predict, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> seem to predict uh, which patients were going to uh, metastasize, or at least you could retrospectively look back and say, oh, the patients that metastasized, if we looked under the microscope, they tended to have these epithelioid type uh, melanoma cells and those that didn't metastasize, they tended to have these spindle-like melanoma cells. So we've known for a long time <clears throat> that there's something about the primary tumor that um, that uh, makes some of them more likely to metastasize and some of them less likely to metastasize. But if you you know if you go back here, the only, the, the, the way that you got this sort of information was by removing the eye. So. <clears throat> Uh, so it was, um, uh, 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 you know, as, as we move forward, 
and we stopped removing uh, most eyes, thankfully, and we were able to treat patients with um, with other therapies oftentimes, you know, we didn't often get this uh, information about the histology. Even doing a biopsy and taking a few cells out of the eye, you don't really get the same quality of information. And even if you do have uh, the enucleated eye and you have this, this histology to look at, it's not that accurate. You, you know, it has a predictive value of maybe 60 or 70 percent. It's a, it's a, there's a strong association, but in an individual patient, you really couldn't look at their histology and say, oh, you're going to uh, be fine or you, you're going to have uh, metastatic disease. So this was uh, still a long way uh, from being able to predict in individual patients um, what's going to happen. And that's going to be a theme throughout today and, and, uh, and the history of the kook. It's it, there. We've known for a long time many factors that are associated with metastasis. Um, the size of the tumor. People like to talk about larger tumors have worse prognosis. Yes, in general they do, but you can't take the size of the tumor and tell an individual patient that you're going to have uh, a high risk or a low risk of metastasis. If you look at a thousand people, yeah, you can say these five hundred are probably going to do better than these 500. But in an individual patient, size is not adequate. Um, location, you know, ciliary body location, um, or or these uh, histologic uh, factors that that uh, I just mentioned here. So a theme here is, you know, we, we know lots of factors, chromosomal factors, um, uh, macrophages in the tumor. There's all kinds of, there are thousands and thousands of publications about all the factors that are predictive of metastasis, but they're only predictive, most of these, in large populations, not in an individual. It's much harder to predict um, in an individual patient how that person's going to do, not, not at a population level. Um, and so, you know, again, here are some of these factors uh, that we've known about for a long time. Um, you know, older patients uh, tend to have a higher risk of metastasis. I, I think that's probably due to immune factors that we're starting to learn about now. Um, uh, but there's no hard and fast, oh, if you're under 50, you're going to do fine. If you're over 50, you're not going to do well. It's, you, can't, you can't do that. It's just, it's a general trend but it's not helpful in a specific patient. I think we all know patients that are quite young and may have developed metastatic disease, and then patients that are quite old and didn't develop metastatic disease. So it's it's a general trend, but it's not something you can use in individual patients. Um, and then there are these other factors that they all have kind of have the same property. And people have talked about, well, if you put them all together, you know, uh, like the AJCC, um, classification or some of the things that they're doing in Europe, trying to just put all of these risk factors together and say, well, if we put them all together, then you can predict better. Doesn't work in individual patients, um, uh, unfortunately. Um, these the, you can predict in larger groups of patients, but not in individual patients. <clears throat> in the early two thousands, uh, there was a, a major. Um, uh, concept leap that the field had. And, and this was seen by a number of people, but this was one representative uh, paper that really started um, talking about the idea that 
Um, you know, uh, before this time, people thought that may, maybe the people that metastasized, there's something that happened at the time of surgery. Maybe when we did the enucleation or uh, put on the plaque or whatever, or maybe a biopsy um, that released the tumor cells and, and, and maybe something we did that caused the metastasis. But we kind of knew that wasn't right because if you, if you look at across many different types of therapy, the outcomes are the same. Um, and uh, the, the same ratio of patients develop metastatic disease. And so it really became pretty clear that um, uh, that the patients that develop metastatic disease um, already had micrometastatic disease at the time their primary tumor was treated. We just didn't, um, we just couldn't detect it on a CAT scan or an MRI or something like that. So um, it really kind of changed the thinking. Of course, we still need to treat the primary tumor, but we really have to start thinking of patients as likely having micrometastatic disease and, and likely not having micrometastatic disease at the time of treatment. And then, you know, developing proactive or adjuvant therapies for those who are likely uh, likely have uh, micrometastatic disease to try to prevent that micrometastatic disease from uh, developing further. Uh, so this was kind of a major mindset uh, change, and it really went hand in hand with uh, the the time that that I got into this field uh, in the early two thousands, uh, and and in my research and and the question that I asked was what is it about the primary tumor, you know, we knew these things like the histology and things like that, that, uh, that associated with metastasis. And now we know certain tumors probably have already micrometastasized when the patient comes in. What are markers that can be very accurate in an individual patient to say, you probably already have micrometastatic disease. We need to be doing things now, not waiting for that to manifest on a CAT scan or something. So uh, in, in the early 90s, <clears throat> um, an important advance uh, came forward, uh, and, and that was that it was found that there were a certain chromosomal changes that, um, that were associated with um, uh, with metastasis and uveal melanoma. And these are chromosomal changes in the tumor, not in the patient's blood or somewhere else, but in the, in the tumor cells themselves. Uh, and the two, you know, they're still around today. The people who discover this don't get the credit they deserve. Valerie White uh, really deserves a lot of the credit. Most of us, uh, most folks don't even uh, uh, remember who she was, but you know, her group, uh, really deserves a lot of credit for discovering monosomy 3 and uh, AQ uh, gain. And, uh, you know, to this day, um, uh, these chromosomal markers and some others uh, are valuable um, in uh, predicting uh, which patients are going to metastasize. You know, monosomy 3 or chromosome 3 loss is the most uh, important uh, predictive factor. Um, but there are a bunch of others uh, uh, that I've listed here. Uh, 8Q gain gets a lot of press, but there are others like 8P loss uh, that's uh, even more accurate. Um, 6P gain is proposed to be a, a good prognostic uh, factor, et cetera. Um, and, and this is of much more value than looking at the tumor size or 
uh, things like that that are really, you can't really apply them in individual patients. This you can. <clears throat> the the downside that I saw with, with chromosomal um, uh, changes uh, back in the early 2000s is really what uh, Dr. D'Amato showed us right here in this paper, which is that you get a, uh, a complex array of different groupings um, of chromosomal changes. And, you know, when you really start trying to, to divide this into useful groups that we can use uh, clinically uh, in individual patients, it gets complicated. Um, the, the other thing is that, you know, not all uh, tests for chromosomal uh, changes are the same. Uh, some people, uh, you know, this is just an old-fashioned, what we call a karyotype, where you look at the chromosomes under a microscope. Um, a lot of centers, especially in Europe, they're still using what's called FISH, fluorescence in situ hybridization, where you're just looking at cells under a microscope that have been stained for certain chromosomal markers. And uh, this, is, this technology hasn't really changed that much in 30 years. Uh, so there, there's a lot of false positives and false negatives uh, with this. Uh, I certainly would not want to make a treatment decision in an individual patient using fish. Um, then there were more molecular approaches that have come along. This is called chromosome, uh, comparative uh, genomic hybridization or CGH. Uh, there are other techniques that are now used today called MLPA and, and other techniques. Um, you know, the, the problem with all of them is that they, they're not standardized. So if somebody in Seattle uh, has monosomy 3, uh, they may not have monosomy 3 in Philadelphia uh, or in London. Uh, it depends on what test you're using, whether you're getting the same result and how accurate and reproducible that result is. And so, um, you know, that really drove uh, me in the early uh, 2000s to look at other technologies. And at that time, uh, an emerging new technology was called gene expression profiling. We, we This term just rolls off our tongue now like it's something very uh, typical and standard, but it is really quite revolutionary in the early 2000s that you could look simultaneously at the expression of thousands of genes. Before that time, you could only look at the expression of one gene at a time. And now all of a sudden you can look at, in fact, you can look at the expression of every gene in the entire genome uh, at the same time. And I was fortunate at the time to be a faculty member at Washington University um, where we were an early uh, uh, discovery center for this technology. And we applied this very, very early uh, to UVM melanoma. Of course, at that time, uh, we uh, were confined to larger specimens, so this would be in the small, uh, you know, the, the 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 small minority of patients who were getting a nucleation. So there was that caveat that we 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 um, were were learning about this only in larger tumors at that time. But what we found very quickly is that <clears throat> using artificial intelligence, uh, which which was quite novel at the time. Now, you know, it, you can't go through the day without hearing about artificial intelligence, but we were using this um, many years ago uh, to say, look, look does, does the computer see different patterns here in the data? And the computer comes back and says, absolutely, I see two different groups here. Um, and you can look at these different ways, but we ended up uh, calling these class one and class two uh, you know, referring to uh, it being a classifier. 
the artificial intelligence program that we used was classifying the tumors as class one or, or class two. And, um, you know, we went on to uh, show uh, in, in, in smaller uh, data sets uh, in my, my patient uh, uh, practice, basically, um, that these class one tumors uh, had a uh, patients with a class one tumor had a much better outcome uh, than those with a class two uh, uh, tumor. And so uh, we uh, this was the, the first publication uh, of this. It was a kind of a landmark uh, publication uh, that's been cited many times. Uh, the data set that we generated here is now called the Ankin data set. He was my he was uh, my postdoc uh, at the time. And this, this data set is now a reference data set that's used all over the world. Um, and, and, and it really set the stage for Coog, um, which was uh, at the time, you know, people would just say, hey, I have a new test. I'm going to look at monosomy three or I'm going to look at this or that. And they would <clears throat> they would test it on their uh, couple of hundred patients from their practice. And that was it. And then it, it was impossible to compare uh, what one group is doing to what another group is doing. Um, we wanted to standardize this so that anybody uh, anywhere that wanted to use this would get the same uh, result. I'm sorry, that keeps changing. Um, and so that's really where Coog was born. We, we proposed uh, uh, in a grant um, that's now and it's uh, ready for its fourth renewal. Uh, it's, it's really a record-setting grant. Uh, but this is where we we started that grant was to say, give us the money to prospectively validate this in multiple centers and to optimize it for needle biopsy. At that time, none of the tests available could be done on a needle biopsy uh, with any kind of accuracy. We wanted to optimize this for needle biopsy since most patients don't get an enucleation. We wanted to be able to do this safely from a tiny needle biopsy. So um, just quickly, uh, the, you know, some of the other highlights of Coog, as I mentioned, uh, we then discovered that BAP1 mutations were responsible for the class two uh, gene expression profile. Um, this, before we published this in science, most people had never heard of BAP1. Uh, now BAP1 is at the center of most uv melanoma research. Uh, as well as research in, UV, in uh, renal cell carcinoma, mesothelioma, and, and a number of other cancers. Uh, so uvm melanoma really um, broke up, broke open this whole field of research into BAP1. We now know that there are uh, therapies that we may be able to use in patients that are specifically targeting uh, the BAP1 mutation. So that came out of Coog uh, and out of this uh, funded research. Uh, as well as other uh, mutations. As, as I mentioned, we discovered the SF3B1 uh, mutation, which is found in, in intermediate risk class one uh, tumors, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, uh, the other speakers will. Um, and so it really set the stage for um, uh, what we now know about uvm melanoma. Um, and I'll just kind of Play this out here uh, so we can see the landscape and then i'm going to turn this over to the other speakers that we now know that um you know we've uh, i'm sure most of you have heard of mutations in gnaq and gna11 there's a couple of other genes that they're all in the same family uh, and most uvm melanomas will have a mutation in one or another of these uh, genes but that does not give you a uvm melanoma that gives you a nevus 
and the vast majority of nevi never turn into a uveal melanoma. So uh, one of these GNAQ-like fam family mutations is necessary but not sufficient to give you a uveal melanoma. Unfortunately, the body does a pretty good job of shutting most of these things down, and we never end up with a melanoma. We just end up with a, with a nevus. But occasionally, one of these breaks through. They get additional uh, chromosomal changes and mutations, uh, and then we get to what I'm calling here an active nevus, uh, which you know we might call a suspicious nevus in the clinic. Uh, and then, if they if they acquire uh, one or another. Uh, uh, type of mutation, they go in one direction or the other. So if they if they lose BAP1, and that's where monosomy 3 is important. Monosomy 3 by itself doesn't really tell you very much. But what monosomy 3 uh, signifies, uh, monosomy 3 means that you've lost a copy of chromosome 3. Well, that's where BAP1 is located. So you need to lose both copies of BAP1 to progress to a class 2 tumor. So one copy is lost just by losing the whole chromosome, and the other copy of BAP1 is lost through a damaging mutation. So if you get one but not the other, you, you don't get a class two tumor. So that's why monosomy three is not as accurate as gene expression profile. And one of the reasons is that if you have monosomy three, but you don't have a BAP1 mutation, then you're, you're, you're not at high risk. You're still class one. So you really have to have both of them. And then on the class one side, uh, you know, the best mutation to have is an EIF1AX mutation because those um, are associated with very, very low risk of metastasis. Um, uh, uh, SF3B1, still much better than having a BAP1 mutation, but it is associated with an intermediate risk of, of metastasis, uh, although it's still in the class one group. So, you know, as you'll hear in the subsequent talks, we one of the things we learned is that class one and class two isn't enough that's the most important distinguisher class one versus class two but then we need to go a little bit further and and learn more about you know is it a class one uh um uh with with certain other changes it turns out that crane is the most uh, accurate way to distinguish low versus high risk it's not chromosomes or uh, the mutations is knowing if they're class one or class two, and then knowing if they're prime negative or prime positive, that ends up being the most accurate way uh, to, to, um, to, to, um, to predict in an individual patient how they're going to do. Uh, but I'm getting a little ahead of the story here. Um, I'm, uh, I wanted to just kind of set the stage uh, for uh, our subsequent speakers. And um, I could take a question now if there if there's a quick question or we can just save them uh to the end dr harbour thank you so much um thank you so much for your presentation and um we're going to move on to dr regstein i believe uh for the sake of time and like dr harbour said at the end we'll take about 10 15 minutes after um the next three presentations so in about yeah, I guess it'll be about 30 minutes each for each presentation, and we'll take questions at the end. So jot down your questions. If you need to, drop it in the chat, and we are happy to um, front that question later, and, and you can come back and listen to the recording if you're not able to stay the whole time. Uh, but thank you both for your time, uh, and we will move on with Dr. Regstein. Uh, Danae, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you fine. Can you guys see my slides? Yes, we we could just a second ago. Just kidding. Um, hmm. 
It's okay. Whatever you just did a second ago worked. It had pulled them okay. up. How about now? Now I can see slides. Okay. All right. So I'm David Reichstein, um, and I wanted to thank <clears throat> uh, the Akira Insight Group for for inviting me. I wanted to um, thank uh, Bill for for being our leader on the Collaborative Ocular Oncology Group. Um, I'm going to try not to sound overly sycophantic, but um, this has truly been one of the one of the better best um, professional collaborations of my entire career. Um, Akira Insight continues to be a, um, a source of um, positive thought and a light uh, at the end of a tunnel <clears throat> for what can be a very difficult disease. And I've enjoyed um, being uh, part of that group and offering um, some of my guidance when I can. Um, but it's really my pleasure to be here. Um, these are my disclosures, most particularly in regards to this talk. I'm a, a consultant for Castle Biosciences. And, and my disclaimer is that um, I was asked to talk about the results of the Collaborative Ocular Oncology Group 1 uh, study. I wasn't part of the Collaborative Ocular Oncology Group 1 study. Um, and so I'm going to um, sort of stand on the shoulders of truly giants in our field. When I was in fellowship, I sat in lectures with uh, a significant interest to Zelia, who you're going to hear from, and Bill, who you he uh, heard from, and um, try to put into context how I use these results on a day-to-day -day basis, recognizing that um, these are results that are... Uh, widespread, but I didn't unfortunately contribute to myself. A little history. Um, first, let me say no one on this call who is suffering from uveal melanoma um, did this to themselves, right? Um, there are only a couple things that we know um, lead to the diagnosis of uveal melanoma. Um, Oftentimes it happens in Caucasians. Oftentimes it happens to people with blue eyes. Oftentimes it happens to adults. <clears throat> Nonetheless, these are things that we just sort of have observed over the course of our lives. And as Bill mentioned earlier, the study of uveal melanoma goes back a century, but it was only in the last really 25 or 30 years that we really began to understand what leads to a really aggressive melanoma versus what doesn't. It turns out that the genes inside the tumor really make a difference. And that's not your genes, right? There are very few of you out there who have what's called a familial um, genetic disorder that leads to you maybe having uveal melanoma or being uh, having it run in your family. That's not necessarily you. We're talking about the genes inside the tumor. At one point, you had a nevus, a mole, right? And that mole changed. When it changed, it became a melanoma. And it turns out that that change was a genetic event. And that genetic event and the series of genetic events that followed really make the difference in terms of what um, that melanoma is going to do to you long term. And over time, we started to see like certain tumors seem to 
um, be more aggressive. Certain tumors are less aggressive. We used um, markers like size of the tumor in terms of its width, size of the tumor in terms of its depth. The cells that were in the tumor, if we, were, if we removed the eye and looked at the cells, we saw that certain cells could be associated with more aggressive tumors. It turns out that none of those things are nearly as helpful as looking at the genes inside the tumor. And um, what we're going to do is see that over, you know, over the next 15 minutes, while I have a chance to talk, that those genes have really turned into what is something testable that we can use. So uh, as Bill mentioned, aside from the um, finding that you can look at a whole gene array of um, genes inside the melanoma, you can also biopsy a tumor very easily and very safely. And this has been validated many, many times that you can biopsy a tumor when you put a plaque on, you can biopsy a tumor when you do proton beam radiation, you can biopsy a tumor even when you do nothing. And it turns out that the information that you gain from that can be useful diagnostically, prognostically, and can be done safely. And we can take that information and put it into, and this is the, this is the test that was um, developed primarily by Bill and his group, <clears throat> put it in a test tube. And this is, this is my very simplified uh, ocular oncologist, ophthalmologist, surgeon appreciation of a very complicated scientific process. But let me try to work through it a little bit. <clears throat> you can take a very small amount of tissue that came from that melanoma just by a needle biopsy, put it in um, a pipette, put it into dry ice, send it to a lab. That uh, can be run through with a whole genome array. And then by artificial intelligence, you can look at the genes in those tumors. And what we find is that those tumors break down into two distinct groups, right? And this was the focus of um, what Bill's original um, uh, 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 research was and what was the focus of his first RO1. Um, and an RO1, by the way, is a grant given by uh, the United States government through the National Cancer Institute or through the National Institutes of Health and is only granted to groups and purposes of study that they believe, one, are worthy of study, but two, show enough scientific um, merit that it deserves taxpayer dollars. And that's really what went into this original um, information is that the tumors broke down into two distinct groups. The panel looks at multiple different genes. This is a little bit difficult to wrap your head around. It's not just one gene, right? And so oftentimes patients ask me, why use gene expression profiling versus looking at monosomal uh, three versus disomy three, uh, chromosomal analysis or genetic analysis? From my standpoint, as a clinician, what I can say truthfully is that the two groups 
break down much more easily and much more um, cleanly when you look at multiple genes than if you just look at one chromosome that may be mutated or lost in comparison to the rest of your whole chromosome, uh, your whole genome. And I'm going to use an analogy, and this is always a little dangerous when I, when I use a new analogy because I never know exactly how this is going to go, but you're going to have to bear with me. Um, and think about uh, a baseball general manager, right? General managers need to decide who are they going to throw a ton of money into um, in order to give a contract to stay on their team for a long period of time. When they do so, they don't just look at one individual statistic. Right. Um, for example, DJ LeMahieu three years ago had um, the American League's um, best batting average. We didn't give him, I'm a Yankee fan, by the way, so you guys are going to hear that I'm biased. We didn't give him the big contract. Right. We gave Aaron Judge the big contract because even though his batting average was a little bit higher, a little bit lower, he also hit home runs. He also got on base. He also hit for slugging percentage. He's an excellent fielder. So you look at all the things to classify what is a really good baseball player versus what is a good baseball player, but not necessarily the one we want to throw all of our resources into. That's the way I think about gene expression profiling. You have a lot of genes. That number of genes that you can put into classifies groups more succinctly and with far fewer errors. And you guys can make fun of me for that analogy later if you want. Um, this is by far the most important piece of data that came out of Kugwan. So what happened was um, the initial research um, that demonstrated that GEP analysis could show that groups um, of tumors isolated themselves into high-risk groups and low-risk groups led to a collaborative and prospective effort between multiple groups um, that uh, gathered their data and demonstrated over a long period of time that you could use genetic um, gene expression profiling to really determine what tumors were going to metastasize and what weren't. What you see in front of you is, a, um, is basically a timeline, right? The number of months that we followed patients, right, after the original diagnosis. And what you're looking at is something called metastasis-free survival. So what you're looking at is the number of patients who are still alive at a certain time point. When you're looking at the blue line, you see that a lot of patients are still alive. Right. So when you look out over 50 months, more patients with class one, far more patients with class one tumors are still alive at 50 months than those who are who have class two tumors. All right. This is something that I use every day. Right. And something that I can really use to counsel my patients. We'll see that that data correlates with chromosome three data. But if you look back. At, the, um, at these two plots, you can see class one and class two metastasis-free survival actually appears to be um, slightly more distinct than monosomy three or disomy three chromosome three status. 
right? We see that diazomy 3 patients do better long-term than monosomy 3 patients do. But that doesn't seem to give us the entire picture in comparison to gene expression profiling. The Coog study looked at a total of 494 patients, and these were culled over um, uh, a group of ocular oncologists throughout the country. Prospectively, um, we're able to narrow that down to 459 tumors. Of those, there was an uh, a successful gene expression profiling. Of those, we got both gene expression profiling and monosomy um, three data. And then we use that um, for a main analysis and then a later analysis comparing um, GEP to monosomy three status. This um, is a set of data looking at certain characteristics of the tumors, right? Certain characteristics that we have previously used to decide who may be um, uh, at higher risk for metastasis, who may be at lower risk for metastasis, things that we had classically um, before our test, our age of genetic testing. What we saw is that things like tumor diameter, right? It did predict that, um, that certain patients were more likely to develop metastasis. Tumor thickness did predict that certain patients were more likely to develop metastasis. Patient age did, or the location of the tumor did, but not nearly as distinctly as that gene expression profiling did. So what it turns out, and for me as the clinician, what it turns out is that the genetics of the tumor matter far more than my clinical impression. And this, is, this comes with a certain amount of humility for me to say that the genes inside the tumor actually matter more for your metastatic risk than anything that I can tell you at day one. Um, we saw that certain things do actually correlate with being class one or class two right? Certain things like tumor thickness, um, it's bigger in class one, or it's bigger in class two than it is in class one. Tumor diameter, bigger in class two than class one. Ciliary body involvement, actually different between class two and class one, but not so much that you get to the primary difference, which is that the primary difference is the genetic makeup of the tumor that can be demonstrated by genetic gene expression profiling. Um, and this has been validated. It wasn't just the collaborative ocular oncology group that looked at this. There were other groups who looked at gene expression profiling and found the same thing, albeit not nearly in the, uh, the numbers that the collaborative ocular oncology group was able, able to garner, but demonstrated the same thing um, statistically that class two tumors are more likely to lead to metastasis than class one tumors. Um, and this gets borne out in um, several studies. The first study to, um, to validate what was seen by the Coug was done by Tara Cuvella's group uh, in Scandinavia, also demonstrated that class two tumors are far more aggressive than class one tumors. This has been validated by other um, uh, groups um, that I'm, I'm proud to say are now colleagues and mentors of mine. Um, it turns out that gene expression profiling consistently leads to um, validated and very, very um, accurate results.
the uh, results of the Coug one analysis um, were enormously important because we were able to take that gene expression profiling, bring it to industry, and turn it into what is now our most important and most common test for determining um, what is an aggressive tumor and what isn't. So I can take a physician-driven sample, send it to a um, nationally recognized um, laboratory, and it can give me with high predictability and high accuracy um, data on what that tumor is going to go through over the course of um, someone's life. And at this point, I almost think that this data, and you'll see it a little bit later as Elia gets into um, uh, future ideas that come out of the coup. I almost think that this information is more important than what I can do to the primary tumor. I think Coug one was a proof of concept, right? It demonstrated that when um, driven, uh, data-based uh, scientists and clinicians can get together, um, we can move the field forward. And I think that was um, the a primary crux of what ended up being Coug 2 and what I hope will end up being Coug 3. Scientists can group, can come together, clinicians can come together, take that data and set up for permanent and future collaboration. And with that, I say thank you for your attention. Thank you so much again to ACIS for letting me be here. Thank you so much, uh, Bill, Zellian, and, ba and Basil for being my colleagues and um, co-conspirators in this endeavor this morning. <laughs> Dr. Reichstein, thank you so much. Uh, this was fantastic, and your analogy was very helpful. I loved it. So um, I guess for those of us who understand a little of baseball, that was that was very helpful. So we always love when you guys are able to break things down. Um, for our next speaker, we're going to have Dr. Basil Williams come in, and he is going to be talking about Kook 2 and some of the more recent, uh, I believe you Kook 2 concluded last year, correct? Like the study concluded last year? Uh, we will talk a little bit about that um, in just a second. It uh, it closed a couple of years ago, um, okay. but, uh, but we are now uh, doing additional data analysis. Um, oh, that's so, super exciting. So, all right, I will let you go. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, Danae, thanks so much for the introduction. And uh, I would like to thank Akira Insight uh, for the invitation to speak with you today. Um, it is uh, an honor to participate um, in this uh, Ion Coog event. And I've had the opportunity to speak with some of the Acure Insight audience before. Um, and um, it always impresses me um, how dynamic and engaged and passionate um, the, the participants in this group are and uh, how it pushes um, us to be better at our job. I'd also like to thank the sponsors for putting together this event um, and uh, Dr. Harbour for his leadership on putting together the and, and also um, Dr. Reichstein and Dr. Kohea um, are our other speakers today for their presentations and uh, and working together. So um, I think we've had two fantastic talks already today um, on the history of the Coug and the results of the Coug 1, and I will be chatting about uh, the results of the Coug 2 here. Um, uh, before we get into probably the most exciting talk of the day about the future of the Coug.
uh, by Dr. Kohea. So uh, we'll be looking at the collaborative ocular oncology study number two um, into results. And um, important to note, uh, the majority of the slides are courtesy of Dr. Harbor. Um, these are my financial disclosures um, of particular relevance, as mentioned by uh, Dr. Reichstein. For me, is uh, Castle Biosciences, as I'm a consultant. Uh, so everyone here knows uh, about uveal melanoma. We know that primary treatment um, is very often successful. Um, despite that, um, there's a lot of times that metastasis develops and it often goes to the liver. Um, there has historically been a bimodal uh, metastasis curve, basically meaning uh, early on, uh, there's a high rate of metastasis a few years um, after the primary tumor is diagnosed. And then there seems to be a little bit of a bump later on down the road. Um, and it has not historically been understood necessarily why there is those, uh, why there are those two modes uh, of metastasis. And um, the idea, we wanted to understand risk stratification uh, to understand which patients um, would benefit from adjuvant trials. Um, as has been discussed before, um, treating the primary tumor is obviously something that is important, but understanding the possibility of micrometastasis um, for moving forward has kind of um, been a game changer in terms of how we think about and how um, we uh, approach ocular melanoma and uveal melanoma in particular. Uh, so uh, we understand using the test gene expression profile, as mentioned by Dr. Reichstein, we have two different classes of tumors, class one with lower risk of metastasis and class two with higher risk of metastasis. This was prospectively um, studied by uh, in the study that Dr. Reichstein just mentioned. Um, and so with longer follow-up uh, of these patients, it was noted that um, there was a subclass of patients with class one tumors who did ultimately develop metastasis. Uh, but in the group of class one um, people that developed metastasis, they were a little bit different than those from class two. So BAT1 mutations were not frequently found. They were frequently not monosomy three um, mutations. And there were a number of SF3B1 mutations um, in these tumors. And Dr. Harbour kind of gave the landscape of um, the different pathways of mutations and, and how that affects first a melanocyte and then a, a nevus um, into developing uh, into a melanoma and the, and the risk categories. And we'll kind of go into that a little bit more later. We also learned that these class one patients that develop metastasis, um, they had a lower likelihood of the metastasis going to the liver there was a longer uh, time between the diagnosis of their tumor uh, in the eye and the metastasis developing, and they also lived longer with the metastasis. And so there was an effort to understand what was going on here and to determine why this was the case. Um, there was an analysis looking at the class one and class two tumors. Again, these are the 12 discriminant genes that are used in the GEP test to differentiate class one and class two tumors. And based on two of those discriminating genes, um, it was shown uh, in the class one, there was a um, low risk group and a higher risk group. And this was based on a retrospective analysis of a single data set. And so when you kind of look at the breakdown of patients, you could see that in class one, this uh, made up about 35% of cases, and there seems to be about a 1% risk of metastasis over a five-year period. The class two group, about a 25% of cases or quarter of the cases, 
And about 35% of those developed metastasis um, or uh, had a risk of metastasis, the five-year mark, um, versus class two, about 40% of cases, and about 70% of those patients had a risk of developing metastasis um, at five years. But it is important to note that there are some limitations um, in the class 1A versus class 1B classification. So first, there were only two um, discriminating genes um, that were identified in this one retrospective data set. It wasn't independently valid. And so um, there is a desire to kind of understand this better and understand which class one patients are more likely to develop metastasis and why. And so the Harbor Lab discovered that metastasizing class one tumors had a distinct molecular profile uh, with preferentially expressed antigen and melanoma, also known as PRAIM, being a dominant biomarker. And so you can see uh, all the way on the left, um, those in blue, the class one um, with metastasis, um, had an upregulation in metastasis. This is completely separate of class two. If class two was on this um, graph, they would be way far to the left. So PRAIM seems to play a role um, in metastasis in patients with class 1 uveal melanoma. Now, this is something that is normal early in spermatogenesis, um, but outside of that situation, it seems to cause significant problems and increase um, the aggressive nature of cancer and uh, increase the risk of metastasis, particularly in uveal melanoma. Um, and so you can see here um, a breakdown of the class one preem negative lesions. Again, about a third of patients with about a 1% uh, five-year metastasis rate uh, versus uh, preem positive, about a 35% risk, and class two, as we know, about 70%. Preem has... Um, um, been assessed on the WashU data set and the Bascom Palmer data set, um, looking at both class one and class two tumors. And what you can see um, with class one tumors, when they're preem negative, they're unlikely to metastasize. Um, class one preem positive are more likely to metastasize. And even when you look at the class two um, uveal melanomas, a preem negative, while, while class two patients are still more likely to metastasize, or class two tumors are more likely to develop metastasis, when uh, preem is negative, it is less likely or happens a little bit later than if PRAIM is positive. So we know PRAIM has implications both for class one and class two tumors. Looking at PRAIM in class one, this has also been validated in other cohorts as well. So um, in the uh, Leiden group in uh, the Netherlands, um, using diazomy 3 um, as a uh, rough estimate for uh, class one, you could see that there's a difference in PRAIM negative versus PRAIM positive. And then combining using a blended data set between the Curie Institute and the Cleveland Clinic, um, class one um, PRAIM positive had a higher likelihood of metastasis as well. So this is something that has been seen in other centers. We've talked a lot about um, other tumor factors that um, play a role in determining metastasis, and it is known um, that gene expression profile um, provides uh, the best prognostic information, and it seems like PRAIM is another important prognostic factor as well. Um, tumor size, especially looking at largest basal uh, diameter, has been studied in a few different um, uh, locations. One, uh, Walter et al., um, with uh, Dr. Harbour's group looking at the um, WashU database and another validating database 
um, Dr. Cohea's work with Dr. Uh, Augsburger, um, looking at about 300 patients out of the Cincinnati cohort as well, also showed um, that tumors larger than 12 millimeters um, in basal diameter um, have an increased risk of metastasis. And so again, in isolation, um, this is not necessarily the most important factor, but in addition to looking at gene expression profile um, and PRAIM, this may play a significant role. So again, understanding um, where we are looking at gene expression profile and PRAM and other factors, we understand kind of how we get from a uveal melanocyte to a melanoma. And so uh, you can have mutations uh, in uh, G proteins, um, which basically most of the time turn these uveal melanocytes into senescent nevi. Um, rarely they can turn into an active nevus. And then depending on what secondary mutations happen in this nevus, that will turn the lesion uh, into a melanoma. And so gene expression profile class one tumors are more likely uh, to have EIF1AX and SF3B1 mutations. And then if they have uh, class two lesions, more likely to have a BAT1 mutation and then have a high um, or low risk of uh, metastasis based on that. And here you can see where PRAIM plays a role as a modifying factor after gene expression profile. Um, and so this is kind of the landscape that we understand right now. It is important to know moving forward that this landscape is likely not going to change. I think these are the big players here, and we're just going to be continuing to work on our understanding of them. Um, and so you can see here, as I mentioned, that gene expression profile and PRAME explain the most prognostic information um, without using a significant amount of, and without using clinical or pathologic data. Um, and this may be the reason why we see that bimodal survival curve um, with the second curve later on down the road representing some patients with class one tumors, um, perhaps with PRAME. And so uh, the idea behind the collaborative ocular oncology group study number two um, was to evaluate gene expression profile and PRAIN um, in a prospective manner uh, to assess for uh, metastasis-free survival. And so basically, um, this was, again, a National uh, Cancer Institute-funded study. There were 25 centers. Over 1,700 patients were enrolled um, over a three-year period. And as Dr. Harbour uh, had mentioned, um, kind of his original work was initially funded, and this is the third funding period for this grant, um, receiving a first percentile score. And um, that's obviously not surprising considering how significant this work has been. And I think Dr. Reichstein mentioned um, a few times how significant this collaboration has been in meaning for his career and, and a similar thing for me. Um, to be able to participate um, in this kind of trial. So um, this is uh, something prospectively evaluating the prognostic information of PRAIM. And so you can see here the relationship between the clinical centers, the Castle Biosciences, which is responsible for um, assessing the uh, tumor samples and giving us the information about gene expression profile, PRAIM, um, and the other mutations, which we uh, briefly discussed, um, uh, uveal melanoma-associated mutations, uh, BAP1, SF3B1, and EIF1AX. And that information goes into our red cap database, and then the rest of the patient information and, and whether or not uh, metastasis is developed goes into the red cap database as well. Um, and then we analyze this information. 
This testing platform uh, has been mentioned. Dr. Harbour mentioned uh, the use of artificial intelligence kind of at an earlier period, um, whereas now it's uh, much co more commonly kind of discussed. Um, and Dr. Reichstein also mentioned the significant value of doing a single fine needle aspiration biopsy to get a significant amount of information. So you're able to get from the single biopsy, not only gene expression profile, but also look at PRAM status and look at these uveal melanoma associated mutations. So the G protein mutations, EIF1AX, SF3B1, and BAP1. So let's get into some of the data from the COOP2. Um, the first data lock occurred in March uh, March 14th of 2023. So there's a median follow-up of 44 months, almost four years um, of follow-up of these patients. Um, and so there were almost 1,700 patients included in this analysis, and metastasis was noted in about 15% um, of patients. Comparing the collaborative ocular oncology group two um, patient data set compared to the original data set of the COOG-1, um, the TCGA, which Dr. Harbour had mentioned before, it seems that COOG-2 is a better representation of the real world distribution of patients. So basically, this is a more accurate assessment of who is likely to develop uveomelanoma and who we're seeing on a daily basis in our clinics that um, require treatment. Um, there is a lower proportion of cases that are enucleated, again, because fine needle aspiration biopsy is able to get a lot of material. And thankfully, um, we're able to assess patients um, with tumors that are treated locally with radiation, et cetera, um, in addition to patients who have uh, undergone enucleation, whereas before enucleation was required to get this kind of information. So again, not surprising, uh, gene expression profile is the most accurate single um, prognostic uh, marker, and that remains true as you can see here on the graph in the um, COOG2 data set. Um, looking at PRAIN, it is an independent prognostic marker. And as uh, noted in previous studies, when evaluated prospectively, um, it does help differentiate uh, tumors after gene expression profile. And so when you kind of look at uh, a competing risk analysis, basically looking at the combination of gene expression profile and PRAIM, you can see that having a class one tumor on gene expression profile without PRAIM is the lowest risk of metastasis. When you add PRAIM to class one uh, tumors, it is an increased risk of metastasis, but not as much as class two tumors, either with or without PRAIM. And those class two tumors with PRAIM are obviously the most likely to develop metastasis. And that happens at the earliest period as well. Um, what about looking at targeted next generation sequencing uh, mutations? So these are kind of the G protein mutations and then the secondary mutations that we had talked about. Um, compared to the TCGA, we can see that um, there is less BAT1 mutations in COOG2 and um, less SF3B1 mutations um, as well with more EIF1AX mutations. And basically, what does that mean? Um, it means that compared to other data sets, um, we're seeing uh, a higher um, percentage of people or, or uh, a larger EIF1AX mutations, basically meaning a better prognostic uh, factor in that scenario. And so perhaps Perhaps the COOG2 is giving us a better assessment uh, of what patients are dealing with on a regular basis than some other data sets. 
So these mutations are helpful uh, to confirm the diagnosis, but not as accurate as gene expression profile and PRAIM. And so prospectively analyzing gene expression profile and PRAIM um, as done in the CUG2 study shows those to be the two most um, important factors. And so in conclusion from this study, we can see um, that gene expression profile, PRAIM, these uh, uh, uveal melanoma-associated mutations can be analyzed from a single fine-needle aspiration biopsy. Um, this interim report focus focuses on gene expression profile and PRAIM, but in the future, we'll get more information about uveal melanoma-associated mutations and copy number variations. This is the largest prospective multicentered study uh, on prognosis for uveal melanoma to date. Um, it validates PRAIM um, and uh, also seen in this largest uh, basal tumor diameter does provide a small additional prognostic contribution. And so gene expression profile first, PRAIM second, and perhaps uh, largest basal diameter um, will provide us the most accurate information um, about prognosis. And there were no other significant patient variables provided um, of clinical significance. I would um, like to thank uh, the other co-investigators on this study. And again, you know, I've been very fortunate to come into ocular oncology at a time um, five to six years ago when a lot of this information was already out in the field. The KUG um, one study um, data was already out there and we had an understanding uh, of uh, molecular prognostication. Uh, for uveal melanoma. And so I've been able to uh, benefit from the fantastic work um, by uh, uh, Dr. Harbour and a number of the other um, uh, participants in the KUG one and Dr. Kohea, uh, one of the um, executive members of the KUG, and, and have been able to kind of benefit from that knowledge and that platform and that, and that um, data set in order to try and improve things and continue to develop the field moving forward with um, the KUG two um, 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 study. And so I'm very grateful to have been included um, as an investigator in this study, very grateful um, to have been able to train under Dr. Harbour as a resident um, and to work with Dr. Kohea on the same service and uh, to collaborate um, with Dr. Reichstein um, on this study and, and other things. So again, I would like to uh, thank Akira Insight for the opportunity um, to speak. Um, and I'm very excited to hear uh, Dr. Kohea's presentation um, on the future of the coop. Thank you so much, Dr. Williams and Dr. Kohea. I'm going to go ahead and move on over to you. Well, thank you so much. And I want to thank not only the sponsors, but I want to thank, thank the patients that are listening to us, both on the live stream as well as here. And I want to do that by shouting out to three very special patients slash people slash friends, you know, um, Diane Sowell, Peggy McFerrin, and Dr. Dan Stone that I know are watching us right now. Thank you so much for spreading the good news, spreading a positive message. We, you know, we wouldn't be here without our patient's trust and their belief that we could make a difference in this cancer. So with that introduction, I want to share my slides briefly here. There, and for me, um, I believe I have the very exciting opportunity to share with you all what we're thinking about the future, 
the future of the collaborative ocular oncology group. And I just have to say, you know, kind of for the sake of memory lane, um, back in the 2000s, I think it was 2007, when Dr. Harbour approached me and um, Dr. Augsburger, who I worked with, and talked about, you know, a multi-center clinical trial. And we looked at him and we're like, you know, we We'll trust you on that one. But everybody was a little hesitant. You know, we had the um, already the routine of doing final aspiration biopsies for a long time in Cincinnati. And it was a great um, partnership. It still is a great partnership, but it really kicked off something that at the time we believed in it, but we never could imagine that it would make such a difference in the world of uveal melanoma and in the future of our patients. And for that, I am immensely grateful. So I'm going to talk about the future of the Coug. I want to thank, you know, Dr. Harbour, Dr. Reichstein, and Dr. Williams for their great presentations. And we'll go from here. Um, my only um, financial disclosure is that I'm a scientific advisor for Castle Biosciences. So when we look at the future, we have to first assess the past, and that's what we've been doing. So Dr. Harbour gave you guys a great introduction of what's been done and what was the premise for the KUG-1 and what led to the KUG-2 and hopefully even to a third study, a KUG-3. But then, you know, when we do that, we can very clearly identify what is in the future, what are our future goals. And obviously, that includes what we want to look at, what we think think could be game changers in the future? And what are the obstacles that we have to overcome? And how do patients benefit? Because in the end of the day, there is or there are many, many faces like you all that I see every day and that definitely inspire me to continue to move forward and do my best job. And how can patients get involved in the KUG research, which is also a very important thing because the field should be moved by research and by science, but also by patient care. Very important. So what are we looking at as we go forward? I think the next uh, frontier for us ocular oncologists is definitely early identification and treatment of the small high-risk uveal melanomas. And this is something we've talked a lot about um, and many, many groups have kind of brainstorm about it and we'll get to it, but it's definitely a very challenging thing and we'll we'll go over it in a minute. And talk about minimally invasive liquid biomarkers because that's another thing that people are talking about. You know, what about liquid biopsy? What about not having to biopsy a tumor? How can that play a role in early identification early diagnosis and early treatment. And finally, adjuvant therapy trials for high-risk patients that I think everybody, you know, touched a little bit about it, Dr. Harbour, Dr. Reichstein, and I'll get into that a little bit more. So effective improved biopsy techniques for small tumors is definitely in my kind of knowledge and my understanding, the way to early diagnose small tumors. Because no matter how we look at clinical factors, and trust me, in the past, that's all ocular oncologists did. All they did was look at clinical factors, look at tumor size, look at surface, look at pigment, look at um, ultrasound. And while these things are helpful, they are helpful, 
they never really made progress in the field in terms of patient outcomes and determination of who was going to develop metastasis. So we know while that, you know, these features get our attention and make us kind of take initiative or make a management decision, it shouldn't be the reason or the, the the factors or the numbers or, you know, you hear about people, oh, you know, I give one, a rate one for this and a two points for that, et cetera. It's not perfect like that. And, the, and we know historically that that's true. So the only way for us to really know if a small tumor is amoebas or a melanoma is by biopsying it. And to me, um, hope everybody in the um, audience here among the doctors are okay with that. I say, if the tumor is too small to biopsy, it's probably too small to treat. It's probably not a melanoma. So um, it's kind of a rule of thumb. There's always exceptions to the rule, but but that's something that always served me well. So there are different techniques that we use to approach tumors. You know, if the tumor's in the iris, we can do what we call a transcameral or a transaqueous biopsy. If the tumor is in the vitreous, and this is what we use most of the time, we can do a transvitreal fine needle aspiration biopsy. If the tumor is more anterior, especially in the what we call ciliary body, then we can do a transscleral or peripheral choroid. We can go straight into the sclera and into the tumor. And this technique we mostly use when we're going to radiate the eye immediately. And then finally, what we call the vitrectomy-assisted biopsy, which some retina specialists prefer. They feel it's safer. They feel they have more control. Um, those of us that, you know, are early developers of final aspiration biopsy, for the most part, we rely on these three other techniques. I, I really feel very comfortable with those, and I personally don't feel the need for a vitrectomy. But if that's what your doctor feels most comfortable with, I think that's a great option. So we did look at some of the small tumors in the CUB2, and this may be our premise for doing something different in the CUB3. So we looked at 264 patients with choroidomelanocytic tumors that were less than three millimeters in thickness and had at least one uveal melanoma associated mutation. And what we found was that approximately 25 to 30% of these patients actually had already BAP1 mutations, meaning even small tumors, they can be metastatic. So it's very, very important that we detect that. And if the tumor is treated without a biopsy, we don't have sufficient information to appropriately deliver surveillance testing that will be a game changer or enroll the patient in a adjuvant trial, as we're going to see that there are many adjuvant trials in the pipeline. So it's very important for all of you out there that are listening to this, that, you know, without a biopsy, nobody can make a very good decision about this. So let's look at the fitness landscape of uveal melanoma. We know that we have a G protein or G alpha Q mutation that then drives these melanocytes into one of three pathways, mostly either BAP1 mutation, which is the high risk mutation, 
or an SF3B1 mutation, which is a moderate risk mutation, or an EIF1AX mutation, which is the low risk mutation. And so this early lineage restricted evolutionary trajectory has helped us, and it was identified here at the Labor Lab, Harbor Lab in Miami as you know a game changer in finding out how these tumors very early on, they choose a, a pathway that they are going to go to. And so, and this landscape will then be impacted just by time of the tumor and tumor size. So you see there, the cells are all migrating to the EIF1AX and, you know, and those are the low risk tumors. Now we talk a lot about liquid biomarkers in uveal melanomas and other cancers. And this is now the wave of the future. Everybody's talking about liquid biopsy and how can we draw blood and find out more and all of that. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute. So when we look at the aqueous, which is the fluid part in the front part of the eye, you know, right between the clear part, the cornea and the iris, there are a number of things, a number of factors that we can look at. We can look at tumor DNA, we can look at tumor circulating cells, we can look at exosomes, which are little pieces of the, of the um, tumor and proteins. And when we look at these things, those are pretty interesting um, kind of information sources. But the problem is that uveal melanoma is not a tumor that keeps on shedding. It's different than retinoblastoma. And so because of that, we really have some challenges, not meaning that it's impossible, but we really need to get into a lot of very refined science and, and very different techniques in order to be able to make that happen for uveal melanoma. And then comes blood. And blood too is a great way, great source of liquid biomarker. But the main problem with the blood is you think of a very small tumor and you know, and how much tumor circulating DNA or tumor circulating cells or, or shed, shed, shed of the tumor and even whatever other biomarkers we would look in the blood and how much this tumor is going to be able to shed in, you know, a gallon of blood, which is what we have. And how are we going to detect that out of a little tube of blood? from a gallon of blood and have the luck of having all of the biomarkers, all of the things we're looking at right here on that little tube. So that's the main challenge, I believe, in terms of liquid biopsy. There are different sources of liquid biomarkers. As I said, there's aqueous, there's vitreous, there's you know primary tumor, that's the actual tumor biopsy. So here in the vitreous, we can have circulating tumor markers. And this is an image that I got from the Stanford group that has been doing a lot of work in that, and aqueous. But my question here is, why would you go in and take the vitreous out and not biopsy the tumor? So to me, we still have to work better at that and find better manners or better, better factors that we can look at. And then it comes the blood, because if we have a tumor and this tumor has blood supply, obviously there are a number of factors and tumor DNA and tumor cells that can shed from the tumor and just get into the bloodstream. And how can we not get a little tube that has all of that in the little tube? Uh, again, the problem is sample size and, you know, the appropriate tubing and all of that. So in the past management of uveal melanoma, what we had was the 
I had to have a tumor large enough for us to clinically detect. And at that time, as Dr. Harbour mentioned, we believe that some of the patients, if not a lot of the patients already had some sort of micrometastasis, a small, tiny tumor that was already especially in the liver. So there we had an evus, there we had transformation or a transition that sometimes doesn't really happen that way. We believe that some of the melanomas start out bad. They start out as melanomas, but nonetheless, for the sake of the sort of the growth and transformation, we will we'll use that concept. And then it becomes a melanoma. And then that's when we detect metastasis, which is a while after we detect the primary ocular tumor. So Definitive primary therapy happens at a point where this may all already be in the works, and that's where the challenge comes. We are very good at treating the eye cancer, but we still are wrestling with the metastatic cancer. So ocular liquid biopsy would probably point to some sort of transformation factors that we could detect. So this is what we think that could happen in the future. And tumor biopsy would still be the gold standard, especially when you have a clinically detectable ocular tumor. And then blood liquid biopsy would probably come into play only when we already have micrometastasis, meaning when the tumor starts out, it's not going to be shedding cells right away. It's still very small. It's still very compact and what we call cohesive. And so we, we would have a real important chance of making a difference here if we could find out ocular liquid factors or aqueous factors that would indicate to us, okay, it's time to biopsy this tumor. I don't care what it takes. We got to get in there and we got to get that tumor biopsy so we can treat the patient early on and then, you know, make a difference. Obviously, when you get into the definitive primary therapy time, then, you know, there is always a risk for already having a, a micrometastasis. So when patients already have a significant tumor, why not be already testing their blood and detecting if there are circulating tumor cells or circulating tumor DNA? And then in the adjuvant therapy um, setting, we would use blood liquid biopsy in terms of following these patients and making sure that they are number one, responding to therapy or number two that you know the metastasis is not growing and there's not a lot of tumor burden in the blood circulation and then in metastatic therapy as i started saying if you're starting to treat the tumor the blood liquid biopsy by lowering the levels of tumor circulating cells or tumor circulating DNA, we would be able to tell, okay, the metastatic treatment is working because we're not seeing such burden of these tumor cells. Now, the other thing that we believe is that adjuvant therapy trials would also be in the future landscape or in the future of KOOK because now we have this interaction with our clinical oncologist team, and, and they are really making a substantial contribution 
to our patients on the metastatic, on the systemic setting. So there are multiple, multiple avenues here that through research, through a lot of the things that were done in the lab and a lot of the things that we found through the KUG that is helping us out and providing uh, alternative treatments. So you all have heard of Tibentafusp, which is the ChemTrack. It's already been FDA approved. It's a T-cell redirected therapy. There are other um, therapies that are currently being tested for metastatic disease, like kinase inhibitors, the IDEA trial, the, the Darovacertib, so it's a mouthful for all of us, don't worry about it, and the PRAME-directed therapy, as we know that PRAME is a targetable um, receptor and, and a factor, so HDAC inhibition that targets BAP1, and then LAG3 inhibitors that was something that, you know, was found right here in Miami at the lab, Harbor Lab. So effective systemic treatment with the Bentafusp has been shown really very revolutionary. The only problem is not everybody, only 50% of the population has the right HLA to be able to um, to use or to benefit from this treatment. Um, I've heard that um, Immunocore is looking at other HLA um, factors or other receptors for other population groups. So that's something that may be coming out in the future. But at this point, everybody that has a high-risk tumor should ask their clinical oncologist to have themselves tested so that they know that they can benefit from this medication. The PKC or the protein kinase inhibitors, um, they are really a very exciting avenue that we're seeing right now. And this is what they call the IDEA trial. And, you know, on the, the, uh, the, this this kind of um, PKC inhibitor, it targets GNAQ and GNA11. And as you heard, a lot, if not all of our patients have some sort of um, mutation in the GNAQ, GNA11 um, proteins. And you see here that the majority of uveal melanomas will have that, um, that mutation. So this treatment is likely to be very effective for uveal melanoma. The exciting thing about this study is that they are opening an arm that is to treat the patient with the primary ocular tumor and to shrink the tumor in a way that the patient will be able to have you know, less vision loss, that we will defer enucleations, and that if we do need to treat, treat with radiation, we'll use a much lower dose. So this is very exciting. Many of the centers are opening the study. The study is very restrictive, though. I have to alert all of you that are listening in um, that if you have certain medications that you're taking, you're not eligible for the trial because this PKC inhibitor, it really targets um, certain receptors that are also used for other medications that you may be taking, like statins and, and other things like that. So just be aware that even if you have the primary tumor that looks like it could be treated and everything else, you may still not be eligible for the study. So this is just the eligibility criteria and, and the two cohorts, one requiring a nucleation, the other requiring black uh, plaque brachytherapy, and you see there's a lot of testing. It's it's as any clinical trial, it's a lot of work, but we are excited to see how is that going to impact 
primary tumor treatment. And for these patients, since we believe that this can have a role in metastatic disease, the patients that do receive this treatment early on, we may be even preventing metastasis. This, this may work as a primary treatment for the eye, but also as an adjuvant treatment for the rest of the body. The potential impact of this study is, number one, to improve globe salvage, improve eye salvage, and possibly limit vision loss associated with I said, impact systemic outcome, and it works downstream, thus potentially improving patient survival, as I said. We all know that PRAME can be used as a target for immunotherapy. There is a study out there and, you know, finding PRAME in uveal melanoma has been a game changer for all of us. And we believe we will be hearing more about that. There's multiple companies that are looking at PRAME inhibitors and, you know, and we, we would be very excited to see a combination treatment that would work for, for patients. So here is looking at how, you know, something like the ChemTrack could work, you know, for also praying positive patients. HDAC inhibition in cancer therapy is a well-known um, well pathway, and Dr. Harbour has worked extensively in that because HDAC impacts um, cell cycle, angiogenesis, cell proliferation, what we call apoptosis, which is cell death, and also immune modulation. So finding an HDAC inhibitor that would work well would be also a game changer. We know that there are some centers looking at starting clinical trials with, with those um, HDAC inhibitors. There are HDAC inhibitors currently available in the market for common use. So that's another very exciting avenue. Um, BAP1 loss, we know also found here at the Harbor Lab in Miami that BAP1 loss is associated with exhausted T cells expressing what we call the LAG3 in uveal melanoma. And LAG3 is supposed to be the third pathway for tumor inhibition. And for many, many years, clinical oncologists were giving us your, our patients, the same treatment that cutaneous melanoma patients receive, and it was ineffective. And now we know it's because our uveal melanoma patients do tend to express this LAG3 much more than the PD-1 um, receptors that is what they use or, or what was targeted for cutaneous melanoma. So this is going to be definitely another avenue to explore. Here in Miami, um, our clinical oncology team just wrapped up a study looking at a LAG3 inhibitor in associated association with the PD-1 inhibitor, and we're looking forward to those results. So I want to start summarizing the future here. I think improved survival in uveal melanoma will occur with accurate molecular prognostication, early interventions, early biopsies, new adjuvant approaches, and effective systemic therapies. And progress is underway in academia and in industry to advance these goals. We're all committed to improving the outcomes of patients with uveal melanoma. Tumor biopsy-based integrated molecular platform as we're using our current, the standard of molecular prognostication. And liquid biopsy is not going to replace tumor biopsy, but it will likely have an important complementary role. And after over a century of unchanged outcomes of patients with uveal melanoma, we're seeing a new era, and that's very refreshing. There are many clinical trials in the pipeline that will likely change how, how patients with uveal melanoma are managed 
And the first step to improve survival of these patients is what we're doing now, is to really better understand what is this tumor all about and how does this tumor kind of coast and avoid all of the, you know, the gates that our body puts in place to block the development of spread and metastasis. And the next phase, we think that, you know, it could be what we call a KUG clinical trials network so that our group can be spearheading new clinical trials and new initiatives and new treatments for all of you. And improved survival, again, will occur with this, you know, improvement in all of it. And we feel that this is going to be the future. We hope our patients will be supportive of that. We hope we can continue to find funding and we hope we can continue to count on the support of site and other organizations that are patient-driven that have been amazing in terms of supporting and educating our patients. Thank you. You, I think you're, 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 you're muted. You're muted. <laughs> and I unmuted and muted myself. That was great. Um, thank you for reminding me. Um, thank you again, Dr. Kohea, for your presentation and also Dr. Harbour and Dr. Williams for yours. We're going to go ahead and bring everyone else back on screen who's still here. Uh, Dr. Greg Stein had to run. He had a previous obligation, but we are so grateful for his presentation, his analogies, uh, all of your guys' explanations. We do have a few Q&As that I can see we've had some typed answers to. I just wanted to make sure we verbally answer those. Um, so Dr. Harbour, Dr. Williams, Dr. Kohea, do you guys want to kind of go through and, and just reiterate some of the answered ones in the Q&A section? Can you see those? I think yeah. Dr. answered a bunch of them as I was Yes, talking. I just want to make sure we answer them verbally so anyone who's listening to the recording and can't see those, we can make sure they can hear the answers. There were, there were a, quite a few questions about Prame and 1A, 1B, and so forth. And so the, the the Prame is going to replace 1A, 1B. And for anyone who has had a 1A or 1B result and a Prame result, it's really the Prame result that's more uh, more important. So that will the 1A, 1B will be phased out. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's part of why we do research. If, if we already knew the answer, it wouldn't be research. So, uh, that's part of why we validate things when, when, when people use tests that aren't validated, that's why we think they need to be validated because, you know, when you look at something prospectively, you know, the 1A1B held up in multiple retrospective, smaller studies, but when we looked at it in a large prospective study, it didn't hold up, uh, like, uh, like Prane did. So, um, I, I, I can't tell you the exact date, but at some point, Castle started automatically running Prame with the GEP. Uh, from a technical standpoint, it's no different than the GEP. It's just adding another gene to the GEP. So instead of 15 genes, you have 16 genes. And it's it's it, their workflow is no different. Um, it's just that before we validated it, it um, it was a separate report. It's kind of for technical reasons that the that castle has to be careful about what they report uh, in terms of whether something's been validated or not. So they, they reported it as a separate add-on, but now that it's been validated, it will be reported together as one, uh, as one report. So I hope that answers a few of those questions. Yeah, I think so. My question just from that, uh, 
if you know, you know, if prame is going to be what counts the most in the one A one B, is the prame still uh, helpful information in class two, or is class two still just higher risk in general? No, no. As Dr. Williams showed, it really separates, uh, and that's the other thing in the early. You know, when we were looking at just a small data set of 100 patients, the class twos, you know, they already have a, a high metastatic rate, so we didn't really see any difference with preen. But in COOG2, we, we have a, a much larger number of patients, and we have patients that are more representative of the spectrum from small to large. And then when, when you see that, there was clearly a difference uh, between preen negative and preen positive, even for class two. So the new system will be class one prime negative, class one prime positive, class two prime negative, class two prime positive. So it'll be a four, four group system. Um, the other the other thing with LBD, uh, the largest basal diameter or the you know the tumor diameter, um, we were there's been a lot of discussion about how to incorporate that because um, it it does it only makes a small contribution. You know, it's it, it's interesting if you if you only have class, if you have GEP class one or class two, the diameter, let's say it makes a ten percent contribution to your prediction. You know, roughly, if you add prime, then the contribution of diameter goes down. So it's a, maybe it's a five percent contribution. So it's 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 not a lot, but it, it is it does modify the prediction a little bit. So how do you incorporate that without getting into a very complex, difficult to understand system? So what we decided was to um, keep it at four categories, the four that I just mentioned, but to have a separate uh, overall risk estimator that includes the diameter. So it'll include your, your class, your prime, and your diameter into an overall risk estimator. It'll give you a, a number, and then it'll give you kind of a confidence interval around that number, and then it'll give you kind of a range. Your your five-year risk is between 30 and 38% or something like that. So that, that'll all be on the new report going forward. Awesome. Sounds, it sounds like it's going to be a kind of a shift for everyone to kind of change the way that they're thinking about this and, and the way that we thought about it for, you know, the past roughly 10 years. Um, well, uh, there was a question. Know, what, what hasn't oh, changed is the class one, class two, as Dr. Williams mm -hmm. mentioned, the fundamental landscape's not going to change. You know, in 10 years, we're not going to say, oh, you know, there's actually four classes. And you know, it, it, no, there's really two fundamental classes. There's class one and class two that's still you know, if you look, you know, even chromosomally, you know, it, you, there's kind of a two major groups. Um, and then everything else is kind of subdividing those groups into finer resolution. But the overall class one, class two from all the way from 2004 still holds. Okay, awesome. So we have a question that kind of goes along with this from Brian Knott, and he is asking, you know, as this data is is changing, um, is there a specific surveillance plan you would recommend for each classification, like in those four areas? And then with that in mind, um, he's just kind of explaining that basically that surveillance is one of the hardest things to get as a patient if you don't have a, a medical oncologist who is equipped with that knowledge. So um, he's just wondering if there's if there's some sort of national or regional medical oncology program that pairs a national uveal melanoma specialist with a local provider so that they can get that information and survey their patients without the patients having to travel, I'm assuming. 
That's a, I'll, I'll take that. I know it's like a big, long, like there's, there's a lot to yeah, that. No, I understand. And I read, I read his question and I think that it's, it's a great question. It's a, it's a multi-layered question. So, you know, um, to start with, you know, what do we do um, with um, the surveillance? So if the patient has a low risk tumor, a class one brain negative EIF1AX um, mutation, we say once a year, um, liver ultrasound, chest x-ray, whatever you want. Remember 93% of the time, 94% of the time, metastasis will show up in the liver and only two or 3% in the lung and the rest is very scattered here and there. You know, And we see some of the patients with, especially the, the class one brain positive with SF3B1 mutations, developing lung and bone metastasis. And these are by and large easier to treat. These patients have a much better outcome, much better survival. So patients that are a class one brain positive, you know, so we're saying, let's get the surveillance testing every six months. And it can be still the same way. It can still be an ultrasound of the liver, especially if the patient is more lean, that they can get good images of the liver. It's, it's sufficient. And once a year, chest x-ray. If the patient is class two, either brain positive or negative, we recommend, or I try to pair them with a clinical oncologist. And if the clinical oncologist does not have experience with how to do surveillance testing, I usually send them a letter. And I tell them that, you know, really you have to put your energy into looking at the liver and little less energy, but still look at the lungs once in a while. So every three to four months, patients that are class two should be getting imaging. And we also like to tell people that, you know, PET CTs, they're pretty cool. They really offer very neat images and everything, but there's a lot of false positives and it's a lot of radiation involved. So if you're going for the long journey, the long haul, if you start getting PET CTs, just as you're diagnosed, you're you're going to be like getting a lot of unnecessary radiation. And, and so we, we need to think of surveillance as ways to catch things. Once you have a suspected lesion, then you can get a PET CT or you can get whatever is more sophisticated. You also want to make sure you don't overburden not only the patient, but also the insurance company, you know, your insurance company is not going to be very happy to pay for a PET CT every three months. It's going to be a huge burden. So we have to be very careful to be, number one, effective to find out what needs to be done, but also what's cost effective and patient safe. So those are the things that are important. And then he asked something else. Um, can, I, can I elaborate on that real quick? Um you know, it, it's a great question. And, and uh, you know, what Dr. Kohei just said is is kind of generally what we're all doing right now. Um, but, you know, this coup to another big um, thing that is going to come out of this is more data driven surveillance guidelines. Um, so uh, we're going to be able to look at that's going to be one of the you know, there won't just be one paper about coup two. There's going to be dozens of papers coming out of coup two. Um, but uh, one of the you know, I'd say one of the first five papers, uh, I'd like to see one that really looks at, uh, you know, at um, because we're, we're, we're actually continuing to follow these patients. So we now have, you know, we had 44 month med median follow-up. We now have 
almost another year's median follow-up, and we're going to continue following these patients. So we're going to have better and better refined data to drive uh, surveillance um, guidelines um, in the future. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the, another thing that KOOP3 Coop three is going to address is can we how can we incorporate liquid biopsy into surveillance, right? So maybe we can do uh, look for circulating tumor DNA as an early sign, you know. So we'll still do imaging, but maybe in between imaging we can do just take a blood draw and look for a change in circulating uh, uh, tumor DNA. So those are things for the future, but for this patient's immediate need. Um, I would just say that there are NCCN guidelines, and your medical oncologist will know what that means. They can look that up, and, and GEP uh, and PREME are both in the NCCN guidelines, and there are surveillance uh, guidelines there. There's a little bit of flexibility in there, but it, it would be very, uh, I think it would be very helpful for your medical oncologist if they're not real familiar with uvm melanoma to look up the NCCN guidelines. Oh, that's super helpful. Um, I'm looking through some of these other questions. There was a question that you answered a little bit ago to Dr. Kohea about the metastases of certain mutations that don't seem to go to the liver. Um, do you want to address that one real quick? Uh oh, she's oh. Uh oh, you're still muted. You're muted. Repeat that. I I had a my my internet my internet flickered here for a minute. Can you oh, repeat that? That's okay. There was a question from uh, an anonymous attendee saying that, that metastases of the SF3B1 mutation tumors don't seem to go to the liver, and they were asking what are the more likely sites of metastases in those mutations. And I'm assuming that's that's the eye mutations, correct? No, no, no. It's the mutations from the eye. So okay. yeah, yeah. The the the, the like the tumor in the eye, the primary tumor. tumor. Yeah. So those are patients that you know have you know we we have agreed on that um, that those are usually younger patients and they don't seem to have as aggressive of metastasis and those are the ones that usually show up first in the lungs or the bones and elsewhere and usually these patients have a much better outcome but that's where you know if we can detect these metastases before they are symptomatic before the patient already has some um, worsening on their overall status that's where we can really make a substantial difference I think we need to we need to clarify that it's not that they don't go to the liver. They go to the liver about fifty percent of the time, whereas but class later. two tumors go to the liver ninety five percent of the time. They um, gotcha. Yeah, they go to the liver later. They're they're usually not you know like the primary. So fifty fifty. While you know when you have a BAP one mutation or a class two tumor, almost invariably they all go to the liver. Right. There, you know, a lot of the early work, understandably, in my lab and in a lot of people's lab was on BAP one because that's where most of the most of the metastasis comes. But we and others are really turning more to SF three B one now. Um, we now have a, um, a a grant from a a, a foundation uh, that uh, that asks us to look at this, and we're we're getting more interested in this. Um, it seems that the SF three B one mutations. They um, they at least partly expose the cancer cells to the immune system, so your body has a better fighting chance uh, against the tumor when it has SF three B one mutations 
And we've seen evidence of this in patients. So it might be a different treatment approach. Uh, if you have an SF3B1 mutation, it might be more about revving up uh, uh, like T cells, part of your immune system that already can see the tumor, but helping rev them up so that they can kill the tumor more effectively. Whereas BAP1 mutations seem to hide the cancer cells from the immune system. So it may be more trying to introduce or educate the immune system to the tumor cells. So that's an, uh, an important reason to know what mutation you have. It, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's not as important for prognosis as a class and prime, but it can be very helpful in understanding the biology and maybe what, what treatment is going to be most effective. I think that's such a good point. Um, just to, to make sure that patients understand that yes, there's the prognosis, but also that some of the information that comes from that initial biopsy can be used and, and is, you know, more rapidly, or I guess, regularly being used to interpret what would be the best treatment outcome for a patient who does metastasize. And I think that that's, that's what we want, right? We want to know that there's an answer when we do metastasize, can we do something specific? Do we have some kind of target that we can point to? And it sounds like these are those targets. Yeah, you know, 10 years ago or 20, when I started doing this research, it didn't really matter. There weren't weren't any treatments. Uh, so, you know, you could tell a patient you're at high risk. We're going to watch you closely. We can do some chemoembolization uh, if you get liver mets. But, you know, we didn't really have much else we could do with the information. Now, we have therapies like the HDAC in inhibitors that Dr. Kohea mentioned. Um, we discovered that one particular HDAC inhibitor called Quisinostat is particularly sensitive to BAP1 mutant uvular melanoma cells. And that trial is about to get started uh, both in Miami and uh, here in Dallas and a couple of other centers uh, as well around the country. And that would be, a, it's a pill that you would take in the adjuvant setting and specifically targeting BAP1. Um, where, whereas, you know, like Tebby and some of these other immune therapies that are coming along, they, they, they have different mechanisms of action. Some of them are introduced, like Tebby is educating the immune system to melanoma cells that it can't see. Whereas say a checkpoint inhibitor, it's trying to rev up, uh, T cells that already are educated. So we, we now have a number of different strategies that we can uh, different therapies that we can try to match with, with individual patients. So I know that some of the gene sequencing, like the, the kind of showing the genetic uh, biomarkers of the, I think it's just, there was, there was kind of the, the class one, class two, and then there was the prime markers in the castle uh, prognostic test. And then I think it was more probably, I don't think that mine, I don't remember my diagnosis three years ago, having it as a, an automatic, like you got the genetic like list. Um, so I think the genetic list of kind of those markers, like the SB, um, or I'm saying it wrong, SFB31, um, those markers became, well, I guess that's my first question is, did they become something that is now part of the information more commonly today than it was previously? And Kind of the follow-up question to that would be, you know, if somebody did have a biopsy done, I know a lot of the times physicians are trying to take, you know, but look at the needle biopsies that have uh, enough that they can store like some tissue. So would it be beneficial for those patients, in your opinion, to have that additionally tested for those genetic, like that full, you know, full panel of genes that they now have available um, just for the sake of things like we talked about having that roadmap to treatment options and things like that? 
Well, I mean, as, as I mentioned before, uh, and it, it's frustrating at times, like why, you know, we, we this has been published, why isn't Castle reporting this? Well, Castle is a very, I, I believe, an ethical company, and they're not going to give you a report, an official report of something that hasn't been validated without some kind of disclaimer. Um, you know, there are people out there that they come up with some test that they developed in their lab and they start doing it on patients without validation. And that's not right because, you know, uh, as we saw with 1A, 1B, sometimes things don't pan out when you when you go to a prospective validation. So, um, so that's why Prane was done as a separate readout before. It was, mm -hmm. it was actually a separate request that the ocular oncologist would have to make because it wasn't officially part of the of the report of the GEP report. Now that will change. They're going to change that very soon, so that you'll get the GEP and the PREM, uh, uh, you know, and this uh, risk estimator um, on the same uh, report. But to go back to the other part that you said, um, Castle does save uh, whatever is left over from uh, whatever they don't need uh, for running the test. They do save that for some period of time. I don't know how long that is, but you know, people have gone back and asked them if they don't have Prane uh, data, sometimes they can go back and, and run that or even the next gen sequencing uh, mutations. Sometimes they can go back and run that, but going forward, um, that will automatically be reported. Okay. I'm trying to see if I missed anything else. Uh, we had a question about the length of the COOG-3 study. And uh, Dr. Kohea, you said that most studies are five to seven years long because it takes time to look at patient outcomes, um, which I think that that covers that. Is there anything else that we need to answer live? Oh, there's another one that just came in. Can any of the three of you comment on the recently FDA-approved Hepzato treatment for metastases? One of y'all want to take that? I don't know. I'm looking this up. I don't know if I've heard of it. It's a liver-directed... It's a liver-directed um, liver chemo drug, oh, I believe. Yeah. The Hepsato kit is the drug name, and then the, the mechanism for oh, how okay, it's yeah. delivered is yeah. part of the, the kit. It's Malphalan. Okay, it's yeah, Malphalan to deliver. It's a, it, there, you know, there have been a number Got of liver-directed um, chemotherapies. You know, the group... At uh, Thomas Jefferson has the most experience with this. Dr. Takami Sato and their their group have, have done all kinds of liver directed um, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, uh, radiation beads, uh, different things like that. Uh, Hepsato is a variation on this. Uh, it has been prospectively randomized, uh, validated in a randomized clinical trial. Um, and you know, it, it would be appropriate for certain patients. I think it would be, uh, hard to make a generalization about which patients would benefit from that, but it's it certainly, it, it is FDA approved. I believe at this point, um, do either of you want to comment further on that? I don't really have experience with it. I mean, I know of the studies. Um, I didn't. I I think what threw me off was the name. I didn't know it had such catch catchy name. Hepzato, uh, yeah, yeah. Hepzato, that sounds that sounds uh, pretty. Delcat, the Delcat Del Del product, but uh, it is somewhat uh, more uh, involved than than what what they call percutaneous liver yeah. perfusion, which is what. Uh, which is what we did in WashU for years. We yeah. published uh, quite a bit on that at WashU, 
And um, as I said, uh, Dr. Sato's group has done a lot of that. Um, uh, it, it, you know, there hasn't been a comparison of Capzato with these other yeah. uh, other approaches, so it's it's hard to say, you know, how they would do side by side. But but I think it's you know it's FDA approved. It's been it's been shown to have some benefit uh, in selected patients. You know, I think part of it will be decide, you know, figuring out using biomarkers and other means like which patients should get that treatment versus some other treatment. I think I think the main thing, you know, we've used melphalan in ocular oncology and systemic oncology for a long time. Melphalan is an old drug, very effective for melanoma, but very toxic as well. And I think the biggest thing that comes to mind when we're talking about local treatment is that it's local treatment. So um, obviously, um, you got to understand that Sometimes the patient only has metastasis to the liver, but sometimes the metastasis is elsewhere as well. So liver-directed therapy will work for the liver, but if it's if there's something else elsewhere, it won't catch that. So um, I yeah. think that's the main limitation. And, and do ask questions, you know, ask your doctor, why not this? And what is the advantage? What is this disadvantage? I, I think the most important thing for patients is to understand what are the upsides and the downsides. When you go into um, a treatment, you have to understand what can be the potential outcomes, the good and the bad. And many times, obviously, we will focus on the good and we lose sight of what is yet to come and and i i, I believe that's um that's a good approach as a patient dr williams when so, you were in uh, philly you get to spend any time uh with the with uh dr sato and and that group over there get any feel for how they decide what kind of liver directed therapy to use uh, we spend time in conversation with them a little bit about the approach, but not actually uh, kind of with their conversations with patients or anything like that. So I probably don't have a whole lot um, to add. They were also using Sutent at the time. So that kind of factored in um, a lot in the decision-making process. So we had two really good questions come in from Facebook. Uh, the first one I suppose could kind of be addressed to really any of you, but it just it just says, what if you didn't get an eye biopsy? If you do metastasize, can the tumor from the metastatic spot be biopsied and then also get a genetic profile? I, I am assuming they're asking if the genetic profile looks the same as it does on the primary eye tumor. Short answer is yes, you can certainly get a biopsy of the metastatic lesion. The class won't be valid anymore because the, the class one, class two, is specifically validated for the eye tumor. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a very so important concept. it looks concept. different in some ways, like the, that class well, is no it, longer it, there. It, some it of the genes or it may might, translate. It, it might or it might not be, but but mm -hmm. it was specifically validated for the eye. So it's not gotcha. valid to do the gene expression profile on a, meta a metastatic lesion, just like people have misappropriated the Castle test to biopsy ocular metastasis. Uh, that's inappropriate. It's only for melanomas of the eye. Um, but having said that, you can certainly look at PRAME. You can look at those uh, mutations that we talked about. And metastatic lesions, as, as uh, I had a paper with Dr. Carvajal a couple of years ago, where we looked at patients with metastatic disease, and they start getting other mutations other than the typical melanoma mutation. So um, there are uh, mutation panels like general mutation panels in oncology 
that would be appropriate in that setting so that they could, you know, you take a biopsy of the liver lesion, you can look for PRAME, you look for the, you know, you know BAP1 and SF3B1 and all that. But then in addition, you can do a general panel uh, to, to look for other novel mutations. And your medical oncologist would be very aware of this. There's something called foundation uh, one and uh, various other uh, tests that are available in that setting. Okay, I feel like that answers that question. Does anyone else have anything to add there? I was just gonna say really quickly that there's kind of two fundamental reasons why you're getting the biopsy of the lesion in the eye. And one is to assess the risk of metastatic disease. Um, and so once you already have metastatic disease, um, then that kind of eliminates at least that portion of the reason for the biopsy. And then as Dr. Harbour mentioned, you can assess a number of other markers with, um, with the mutation, uh, with the metastasis. And so that kind of takes care of the second part in terms of um, down the road, deciding appropriate treatments um, based on that. Okay. So you all have mentioned, and I think specifically, uh, Dr. Kohea, you mentioned some some upcoming clinical trials, uh, specifically the Davacertinib. I'm, we all keep messing that one up. Darrow. Call it Darrow. Darrow. Okay. The Darrow. <laughs> the Darrow trial. Um, that one, do we have a trial number that you could, that you could provide, or would it just be best for someone to search up uh, IDE? IDE196. Okay. And does that cover, that covers both the eye treatment, like initial treatment with the drug so there's, and then the there's, advent yeah, and the you know, metastatic? They're, they're using it for different reasons. So there's different arms. So there's one arm for primary treatment and there's one arm as adjuvant treatment. So for for the primary treatment, for the eye treatment, so this, you know, this enrollment is based on, you know, mostly tumor size. So there's two arms, there's one arm that is the large tumor arm, and those are the patients that would be enucleated. And, you know, instead of enucleation, you take the medicine for six months. If the tumor shrinks, um, you can go to radiation. If the tumor doesn't shrink or if you see growth between the evaluations, you can be redirected to enucleation. If the tumor shrinks in six months, then, you know, it depends on how effective that shrinkage was. There's two kind of out, um, out uh, kind of pathways there. One of them is turning into radiation then, and the other one is to continue with the treatment. Um, and then there is the radiation arm, and the radiation arm are the patients that have tumors of a size that is eligible to plaque brachytherapy, but that, you know, would have significant vision loss. So these are also, again, larger tumors, a lot of serous retinal detachment and all that, and you put the patient in the trial with the hopes that it will shrink the tumor and minimize the radiation damage, and the outcomes are the same. Um, it's important to highlight that, you know, these these trials, while they are very exciting and everything, they do involve quite a bit of traveling that sometimes may not be covered by the sponsor. And there's a lot of testing, a lot of traveling, a lot of regulatory stuff. It's, you know, for, for the IDEA trial, it's a once a month evaluation. And, you know, those are very long days. So um, I think it's it's something that people need to consider because it is very disruptive for your life and your family's life. And, and starting the trial and not completing um, maybe won't give you any benefit. You know, it's not even about the research or or any of that. It's just that, you know, if if you're going to start, 
prepare yourself because it's going to be six months where you're not going to own your life very much. You're going to be really kind of looking at how you're feeling and all of that. Is it worth it? Well, it's very promising. We hope it is, but we don't know. And I think that's another thing. When when entering a clinical trial, patients need to understand that they may have the intended outcome, but they may not. And so um, that's kind of helps to manage expectations. Yeah, the, 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 what, what, what they're calling this is a neoadjuvant trial. So adjuvant is where you, you know, treat the tumor. And then if you're high risk, you get some kind of adjuvant treatment. Here, they're, they're giving this before the definitive treatment, which would be either a nucleation or a plaque. Um, so that, that's kind of a novel concept, uh, uh, maybe not completely novel, but something that's becoming more popular in um, in medical oncology and, and in melanoma in general. Um, so, uh, you know, as Dr. Kohea said, you would be started on the on the drug. And then if it shrinks sufficiently, you can either avoid a nucleation or possibly have a plaque with less radiation. Um, you know, I, I, I agree with everything Dr. Kohea said about you need to go into a clinical trial with open eyes. But, you know, if I had the opportunity to possibly go from an enucleation to not having a nucleation, I would probably consider that very um, seriously. Uh, uh, um, I would have taken it. <laughs> like yeah, speaking of know, someone whose eye was irradiated too much because it was so large, like if I could have shrunk it and escaped a nucleation, that would have been, that would have been great. And, you know, it, it may not work. That's why it's a clinical trial, but the preliminary data from earlier phase trials was very um, promising. And I, I have no financial interest in this company, but it's one of the uh, it's one that I'm 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 kind of cautiously hopeful about, um, and it won't be the be all and end all. It won't solve all of our problems, but if it pushes the needle forward and we learn something from it, maybe it's just certain patients who who benefit from this. Maybe certain mutations uh, they do better than those with other mutations, but we'll learn something from this uh, hopefully uh, to move the field forward. We did have a note just come in, I think, from, uh, I want to say it's from IDEA, um, and he just said that IDEA will cover patient travel for the neoadjuvant clinical trial, um, and that they have a trial for patients in the metastatic setting as well. Um, so just definitely reach out to trial representatives, um, the, what is the name for it, the investigator, the principal investigator and their team to make sure that you understand, you know, all of the things going into those trials, whether it's this one or, you know, other, other trials that exist, like the aura trial for the eye as well. Um, so I think that's all the time that we have for questions. Um, I don't, I, I don't know if you want to end with the final question, Dr. Kohea, that, that just came in, um, just kind of on a hopeful note. Uh, but we are infinitely grateful for all of your guys' time, um, and for everyone who participated and gave us some questions. Yeah, I think the last question was, you know, do I, do we think there was, there's going to be a cure in our lifetime? And my answer was, I don't know if there is going to be one cure, one treatment that will work for everybody, but I think we are moving forward to having metastatic disease by and large as a controllable condition, you know, something that, you know, you're using a medication and you control for a period of time, and then that medication may not be as effective, and then you change to a different one. And that's why we're looking at different pathways. So I, I'm 
I don't know if cancer or in, in general, uveal melanoma or any other cancer is something that, you know, that there's going to be one cure or a cure because each body is very different. Um, but I think that the more we know, the more we understand, the more we have different medications, the better control we will have. And hopefully one day we'll look at cancer like we look at diabetes or hypertension and we'll be able to control folks and, and have them have a good life, a healthy life, and, and just manage it day by day. That's, that's what my hope would be. I don't know if anybody has anything different to add. Couldn't say any better than that. Well, Agreed. thank you all for your time. Thank, thank you. you so, so much. Um, we will have the recording up uh, within the month, within the next few weeks at the very latest. And so if you can just keep a lookout on our YouTube channel, subscribe there. And I'm just going to briefly, uh, I guess I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our panelists. If you guys have other, where, other places to be, and I'm just going to run through just like two or three short announcements for you guys. Everyone have a great day. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. All right. So like I said, the recording will be available both on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can search the I Believe podcast to find it. You'll also be able to search I on Coog, uh, C-O-O-G. And you can also find this as a separate uh, separate season on the I Believe podcast. And we will split it probably into two to four segments, depending on uh, depending on preference with editing. Just so that you guys know, keep a lookout this month for announcements about the Insight Registry and just this year in general. Uh, we have our Insight Registry and we would love to have you join this registry. So if you have not done so, if you haven't updated your surveys recently with uh, current medical kind of medical history or just kind of where you are in your diagnosis journey, please make sure to update those surveys regularly. And if you have not joined the Insight Registry for the purpose of furthering the research of the ocular melanoma community and helping doctors and physicians and everybody join together to understand, you know, what are some of these unique differences about different patient situations. Uh, please do so. Please join the registry. And if you head to lookingforacure.org, you can find the latest information on our upcoming races. This month, we have Orlando, Florida on January 20th. So if you're closest to that area, please come. Please tell your friends and family about this upcoming race and also the Miami the very next day. We're going to be seeing Dr. Cohea, Dr. Williams, and the Baskin Palmer team there. And we are so excited and grateful for their support and uh, to be able to see you guys there later this month. Following that, we've got Tampa in March. And there's also, I believe, Brooklyn in March. And you can find the rest of these race details on run sign up as well as the lookingforacure.org. If you have not yet, take a screenshot of this and you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Um, we send out just updates. We kind of help highlight some of the things you might have missed on social media. We know there's a lot of information we can put out there. And obviously, as research continues to, to escalate, uh, we have more information to share. And we want to make sure that you are up to date and seeing all of the latest updates, uh, seeing all of the latest news that we have, both within our organization, but also within the different bio companies, the trials that we get updates about. We want to be able to share those directly with you to your inbox. So subscribe to the newsletter, take a screenshot of this and you can subscribe or email me and I will get to the subscription list. And uh, we would love to just make sure that you are getting the up-to-date, um, up-to-date updates. I can't think of another word for it today. And just lastly, we want to thank again our sponsors, Castle Biosciences, Immunocore, Ideo Biosciences, Aura Biosciences, Trisalis Life Sciences, and Delta Health Systems. So thank you guys for being here. Thank you for your time. And we will see you next time.
Thanks for joining us today for this year's Eye on Coog and I Believe Mini Seminar. This seminar was brought to you by Castle Biosciences and made possible by our other sponsors, Aura Biosciences, Immunocore, Ideo Biosciences, Delcath Systems, and Trisalis Life Sciences. We'll see you next time.